For the last 10 years, it has been on the radar. Tonight, a game to guess blood alcohol levels is being called the thin edge of the wedge in racism in BC's healthcare system. Plus, it has been very challenging to bring uh, some of our staff back. Why the CERB may be discouraging some staff from going back to work. And still some plans, yep. and but it's different maybe than other summers. Happy solstice, how tourism and tourists are preparing for a summer staycation like no other. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening, thanks for joining us. It's the story that has sent shockwaves right across the country. The allegation that some BC emergency room staff have been playing a game to guess the blood alcohol levels of patients, particularly Indigenous patients. Julia Foy has more tonight, including how the game was exposed. This Price is Right game is, is so offensive and, and just so... Uh, incredibly uh, disgusting. Daniel Fontaine of Métis Nation is not talking about a popular game show. Instead, he's referencing a disturbing racist pastime that allegedly has been happening in BC hospitals. What we've been advised is that staff uh, within the acute care system, in particular in emergency rooms, are playing a game where they measure, uh, they, they, uh, they forecast what the blood alcohol concentration is of Indigenous patients who are coming in. The shocking suggestion came out this week during a Sanya's Indigenous Cultural Safety Training Program. Health authorities across the province were quick to send out a statement about the allegations. If true, this activity would be evidence of systemic racism and discrimination, underscoring the significant health disparities Indigenous people in our province experience. Those are clearly uh, very uh, deeply, deeply trouble, troubling, sickening uh, allegations. The Hospital Employees Union is pushing for more diversity and inclusiveness to fight racism. The healthcare workforce uh, is underrepresented, particularly of Indigenous people uh, in many parts of our province, and that we need to take very concrete, clear, intentional steps to correct that. Fontaine says the Price's Right scheme may not be the only racism game on record. Last year's Sanya's training report lists several other racist incidents, but were not made public. The fact that this report was published in March of 2019, so we've known for over a year that this has happened. First Nations leaders say changes are long overdue. Racism is ugly. It's very uh, hurtful, it's heartbreaking, and uh, it's absolutely shameful. Indigenous lawyer Mary Ellen Turpel lafond is leading an investigation into the so-called Price is Right allegation. Julia Foy, Global News. A march and vigil was held in Vancouver today to honour the life of Chantelle Moore. She was the Indigenous woman from Vancouver Island who was killed in a police-involved shooting in New Brunswick. Dozens gathered at Hinge Park in the rain to light candles in Moore's memory after marching from Vancouver Police Headquarters on Camby Street this afternoon. The 26-year-old was fatally shot by an officer from the Edmonston Police Department who was sent to her home to conduct a wellness check. Police say the officer was confronted by a woman threatening him with a knife. Quebec's independent police watchdog is investigating her death. What we need is an independent inquiry. That's what the family wants. They want an inquiry into what happened and they want to be involved in the inquiry. So our main point of being here today is to stand in solidarity with them and repeat the demands of the family. Oh, justice! 
dozens of protesters, many of them carrying signs, marched single file down number three road in Richmond this afternoon, physically distancing themselves in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. They also held one minute of silence for the victims of racism. I think that it's time that we open up the conversation about racism in the Lower Mainland. A lot of people seem to be naive about what's going on. Um, and a lot of people say, well, I haven't seen it, I haven't witnessed it, so they don't see, they don't think that it's there. And we're here to show people that it is there and to start that conversation. It's really heartbreaking to see um, the amount of racism that um, black people and indigenous people in particular in Canada are facing. We need to do better. I mean, Richmond is a multicultural uh, community. When a group of people is hurt, it hurts every group. Anti-racism protesters also took to the waters of Fanier Park today. A group called Paddlers Against Racism came together in solidarity with anti-racism movements around the world. Organizers are hoping to spark wider conversations about racism. I realized um, that you know I've been com quite complacent about racism for a long time, even though I felt myself not to be racist. But I didn't really know what to do about it. And so this is just really the beginning of um, accepting that um, I know that I'm too ignorant about racism and to try to, um, to commit to becoming more aware and to taking action against racism. Some business owners trying to survive the pandemic are now trying to overcome another hurdle, the impact of the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. The CERB is meant to tide over workers who are laid off or can't work due to the crisis. But as Nadia Stewart reports, it's now become a disincentive for some employees to return to the job. Hasib Sawari says it took years to build the team at Afghan Kitchen. But COVID-19 forced the layoff of nearly 20 staffers, leaving the owners working around the clock. We're here every single day. Um, I work seven days a week, almost like sometimes 15 to 20 hours to uh, make sure that we survive through the pandemic. Now that the Surrey restaurant can reopen, Sarwari says they're facing a new challenge. Like many other small businesses, they're struggling to lure their staff back to work. There's no easy answer. A lot of people lost their job uh, when the economy shut down. Uh, some people are uh, opting to stay home uh, and they have their own reason. But yes, it has been very challenging to bring uh, some of our staff back. The Canada Emergency Response Benefit was meant to support workers who'd lost their job because of the pandemic. It's not clear how many people are opting to continue receiving the benefit, though they can return to work. We certainly have members who are telling us uh, that when they call their workers and ask them to come back, the worker says, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm good. My bills are being paid. I'm just going to take the rest of the summer off, see how things go and give me a call in the fall. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business says Ottawa is looking to introduce new guidelines. Among them, if an employee is called back, their benefits would end and requiring people receiving the funds to be available and looking for work, as is the case with EI. Moving forward uh, with our, our bill would uh, give us further measures to encourage people and to uh, you know, make sure that people were taking work when it came up. I believe they really need to look at that minimum 1,000 thresholds and make some adjustments to help out not only the families but the small businesses as well. Both Sarwari and Kelly acknowledge some workers are unable to return to work because of health concerns or they cannot find reliable childcare. 
They hope government will find the right balance between Canada's cash-strapped households and small businesses. Nadia Stirk, Global News. The provincial government is helping heavy industries during the pandemic with an extension of the one of its relief programs, that is. The B.C. government is giving mining, forestry and other industries impacted by the financial crisis the opportunity to defer their electricity bill payments for another three months. As part of the B.C. Hydro COVID-19 relief program, eligible business customers can continue to defer a portion of their bill payments from now until the end of August. But companies should note the defer amounts will have to be repaid over a nine-month period and are subject to interest. After an all-day public hearing, the District of Saanich has voted in favor of a bylaw change that will allow more unrelated people to live together. Until today, the zoning bylaw limited the number of unrelated residents who can share a home to four. But with a proposed amendment approved, six unrelated individuals can now share housing. The UVic Student Society fought for the change, saying the old rules meant anyone living with more than three roommates could be evicted. But those opposed feared problems if more unrelated residents were allowed to live in a single home. The change that you are afraid of happened a long time ago. Sanish is not the city that it was 28 years ago when this bylaw was last amended. Amending this bylaw won't change anything other than helping those who are threatened with eviction every day through its existence. We're already living illegally because we don't have a choice. This bylaw is broken hundreds of times every single day because you're asking us to choose between breaking this bylaw or living on the streets. Anti-poverty advocates gathered in Surrey this afternoon to call for more housing for low-income residents and a reduction in corporate development. They leave this area undervalued, under-resourced, where people gather because this is where the services are. And because of that, the land values drop. The protest took place where a long-running tent city once stood on 135A Street near 108 Avenue in Wally, also known as the Surrey Strip. Occupants who lived at the encampment were forced to leave two years ago, and now developers are looking to build condos there. A proposal for a 1,200-unit high-rise in the area where modular housing currently stands has recently been approved by Surrey City Council. Organizers of today's demonstration say Wally needs more low-income housing, not less. We need affordable housing for low-income people, which we all are. And, the, you know, big, big corporations are coming in and taking everything away from us. And now what does that do? It puts the homeless people at risk more. And that's not fair. Some shocking information on the victims of B.C.'s other health emergency. Fraser Health reviewed the records of more than 100 overdose victims in 2017 and 2018 who'd been in a hospital within a year before their deaths. They found that men between the ages of 19 and 59 still account for the largest number of overdoses. Among young people, the average age was 25 and 80 percent were male. Nearly all showed evidence of a mental health condition or a substance use disorder and half had experienced interpersonal conflicts. Among women, the average age was 40. Two-thirds were mothers and more than half had experienced or witnessed emotional, physical or sexual abuse. Fraser Health says the statistics give them a better idea of where to target drug programs. 
A slow-moving landslide has closed the only road into a community in the Peace River region. About 50 homes in Old Fort, about a 15-minute drive from Fort St. John, are on evacuation alert. The slide is said to be about one kilometer from the community. The Transportation Ministry says the road is closed except for emergency vehicles. The provincial government says localized ground movement was detected Thursday night, but no movement has been detected so far near the residences. In 2018, the town's residents were evacuated for about a month after a mudslide blocked the road. A small Okanagan Valley community has been hit with a rash of attempted break-ins and petty thefts, with residents even coming face-to-face -face with the prowlers. As Darian Matassafung reports, at least one of the frightening incidents was caught on camera. What the f*** is this? No. This shocking encounter was caught on security cameras in Peachland. Gary Hedge, who is president of Peachland's community policing organization, says a man tried to brazenly break into his house while he and his wife were home. We thought it was our neighbor actually watering her plants, when in fact, after they repeatedly went over and kept ringing, my wife actually went down onto our lower deck and came face to face with a guy who was about to do a home invasion. It was 8.39 in the evening. Hedge's security cameras caught most of the incident on tape, starting with a grey Pontiac Grand Am pulling into the driveway and a young man dressed in camouflage getting out. So he then cut this screen off and was proceeding to try and jimmy the window. Finally, startled by the homeowners, the man ran back to his car, almost hitting Hedge while making his escape. The Hedges aren't the only Peachland residents who have had similar experiences with prowlers. My daughter the next morning had asked me if I had a friend come over late in the night and uh, obviously I didn't because I had to work the next morning and then uh, she had said she had woke up to some guy knocking on her door and then she woke up, sat up in the couch downstairs and realized there was a guy looking in through our window. Venturato says the incident has frightened his family so badly they don't feel safe at home when he's not there. She's scared. My wife's scared to be home by herself now. And like there's videos of these guys doing this during the day. Venturato says he and a few of the nearby residents have begun a block watch and are regularly driving through the neighborhood looking for suspicious activity. RCMP did not get back to Global News in time for broadcasts regarding these incidents. Darian Matassafong, Global News, Peachland. Police in Seattle are investigating the discovery of several bags of human remains found at a West Seattle beach. On Friday afternoon, they got a call about a suspicious bag in the beach near Luna Park. Another bag was found in the water, and once the contents inside were determined to be human remains, detectives took over. Harbor Patrol is also assisting Seattle police. The remains are being taken to the King County Medical Examiner's Office to determine the cause and manner of death. The federal government is expanding fishing closures and size restrictions to protect devastated Fraser River Chinook salmon populations. It's a move that has the sport fishing industry reeling after a year of setbacks. Paul Johnson explains. For Vancouver-based sport fishing businesses, their biggest draw is the mighty Chinook salmon. And their prime fishing grounds are the easily accessed waters around the mouth of the Fraser River. Now, a new directive from the DFO means none of that will happen this summer. We had been expecting uh, to hear an announcement. It, it, frankly, it's well, well overdue. Owen Bird is the executive director of the Sport Fishing Institute of BC. 
and says the closure is the second in the one-two punch sequence that the industry has been hit with this year. First, all of the effects of the COVID pandemic. Now this. It is a very uh, bitter pill to have to swallow. DFO says the closure is needed to protect threatened stocks of Fraser River Chinook, reeling from climate change, habitat loss, and recently a landslide on the Fraser that's prevented some of them from spawning. Bird says the industry gets it, but thinks an exemption for hatchery-raised fish, easily identified by a missing fin in their backs, could amount to a lifeline for some of the local operators. In Vancouver in particular, the impacts are kind of most, most severe and f- frankly, uh, un- unexpectedly so. Bird says it's too soon to say how much this will cost the industry, which is worth more than a billion a year to the province. But he also wants anglers to remember that outside of this closure area, there are still lots of opportunities to fish for Thais in B.C. Chinook are the kind of the marquee species. There are runs of Chinook all up and down along this coast. Some of them are, are particularly abundant. In Vancouver, Paul Johnson, Global News. A bald eagle is recovering at a wildlife center on Vancouver Island after a very close call last weekend. Poor bald eagles hurt or something. Not doing too well. The injured eagle ended up on the roof of the community hall in a house at last Sunday. Our CMP in the First Nations community on Flores Island, north of Tofino, responded along with the local fire department. One of the officers brought his own dog crate and blanket in case they were needed to capture the bird. But before the rescue attempt, the eagle got scared and slid off the roof. Oh, 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 oh. oh there he goes, there he goes. RCMP say the two officers used blankets to cover the eagle and place it in the dog crate. The eagle was kept at the detachment overnight where it feasted on fresh ling cod before one of the officers drove it to the North Island Wildlife Recovery Center near Parksville. The remains of all six Canadian soldiers killed in a helicopter crash have now been recovered. They include Captain Kevin Hagen from B.C., Captain Maxime Miron Morin from Quebec, Sub-Lieutenant Matthew Pike from Nova Scotia, and Master Corporal Matthew Cousins from Ontario. The remains of Sub-Lieutenant Abigail Cobra and Captain Brendan McDonald were identified just after the accident. The military says the bodies will be released to the families over the coming days. The members were killed when a cyclone helicopter crashed during a training exercise off the coast of Greece in April. U.S. President Donald Trump is kicking off his 2020 re-election campaign against the backdrop of calls for racial justice. Today's rally is taking place in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the site where hundreds of black Americans were massacred nearly a century ago. Oklahoma is also a COVID-19 hotspot, with the number of new cases there rising steeply over the past week. And now six Trump campaign staffers have also tested positive for COVID-19. The campaign team says they are following quarantine protocols and won't attend the rally. But Trump supporters are showing little concern, flooding the city by the tens of thousands. Jennifer Johnson reports. It's what Trump 2020 supporters have been waiting for, a rally to reignite his campaign after months on the sidelines and controversies. It's just really important for us in the midst of everything going on to come out in really great numbers and show our support to President Trump. The president looking to rally his base after missteps handling the COVID-19 pandemic, Black Lives Matter protests, and blockbuster allegations in former National Security Advisor John Bolton's new book. 
The rally is just blocks from Tulsa's Greenwood District, once the wealthiest black community in the nation, until a white mob burned it down in 1921, one of the worst episodes of racial violence in U.S. history. Historians believe as many as 300 black people were killed and more than 10,000 black residents were left homeless. This land is, is very important to me, it's very sacred. It was born of necessity to take care of one another, take care of their own needs, but thrived, was a thriving economic center. Despite the racial tension still in Tulsa and a record rise in cases of COVID-19, the rally was not relocated. President Trump warning any protesters, anarchists, agitators, looters, or lowlifes who are going to Oklahoma will be dealt with. Tulsa officials appealed to the state Supreme Court to force precautions, like wearing masks, but lost. Campaign officials say masks will be voluntary. What we've got is personal freedom, letting people make those decisions. We're encouraging everyone who would be in a high-risk category to have a negative outcome with COVID to, to maybe not participate. Thousands are excited to attend. Despite fierce downpours and sunny days, many have camped out near the arena for close to a week. No worries about COVID. Attendees are having their temperatures checked, offered masks and hand sanitizer. I will take a chance I get that virus, but I'm not going to get that virus. At least two members of the White House Coronavirus Task Force advised the Trump campaign against holding the rally. The president is looking for a boost, and his supporters are ready to give him one. Jennifer Johnson, Global News, Washington. It now appears a fight between the White House and a top federal prosecutor investigating Donald Trump allies is over. Jeffrey Berman announced he is leaving his post immediately. Berman showed up at his office today defying Attorney General William Barr, who just hours earlier ousted the lawyer. Last night, Barr released a statement announcing President Trump was nominating current Securities and Exchange Commission Chairman Jay Clayton to succeed Berman. Berman was quick to fire back, saying he had no intention of resigning and would only leave with the Senate confirmed when a Senate confirmed his replacement. Well, today, Barr said Trump had fired Berman, but late this afternoon, Trump said that he's not involved. Berman's office prosecuted former Trump confidant Michael Cohen and has been overseeing investigations of other Trump allies, including his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. And late this afternoon, Berman issued a statement saying in light of Attorney General Barr's decision to respect the normal operation of law and have Deputy U.S. Attorney Audrey Strauss become acting U.S. Attorney, I will be leaving the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York effective immediately. In Health Matters tonight, officials in Australia's Victoria State are reimposing gathering restrictions. Ignoring the requirements to isolate and instead going and socialising, then we are going to see more and more of these cases. Yeah, this comes after recording double-digit increases in COVID-19 cases for a fourth consecutive day. The Premier is ordering household gatherings to be restricted to five guests or fewer until mid-July. The state is also delaying easing restrictions for cafes, restaurants and pubs for three weeks. Victoria recorded 25 new cases today, the highest daily increase in two months. Mass COVID-19 testing was carried out in Beijing today to try to rein in a new outbreak. Officials in China's capital have expanded testing across the city of 20 million ever since a cluster of infections linked to a food wholesale market erupted more than a week ago. The outbreak, the first in Beijing in months, has now surpassed previous peak numbers in the city in early February. Officials are now targeting the tens of thousands of delivery personnel, many of them on motorized pedicabs and scooters, who regularly traverse the city. 
You're watching Global News Hour at 6. How a family of vacationers in North Carolina helped save a fawn trapped in high water. We're going to have that for you right after Yvonne's forecast. But first, much, much of eastern Canada is under a heat warning this weekend. Temperatures in Toronto are expected to climb towards 30 degrees Celsius. The city has opened 15 emergency cooling shelters. Staff will be on hand to remind people to maintain social distancing as the province struggles to flatten its curve. And Yvonne, we've had there are hot temperatures in Montreal as well. I think, are we the only spot where it's not hot? <laughs> it feels like it and very wet and rainy. So I want a uh, happy summer solstice to everybody. Uh, but a quick glance at some of the statistics. The rains has seemed to time out every weekend and including this one, we've had six weekends in a row with some wet weather and nine out of the past 10 have been wet. So rain either on the Saturday or Sunday, but looking ahead towards next week, a different weather picture where we do have the return for some sunshine. Summer solstice officially this afternoon. So it's the Earth's northern hemisphere tilts towards the sun, the highest sun position in the sky. Today, the longest day, shorter days are coming. Uh, daylight, 16 hours and 15 minutes. So uh, tomorrow will be a first full day of summer, and it's definitely going to feel like it as we get in towards next week. A glance at the tower cam out there. We do have a fair bit of cloud cover. It'll be a similar weather picture as we get in towards tomorrow. I'm going to move over just a little bit more. <laughs> Temperatures are sitting at 20 out of the airport. We've got a southeasterly wind at 15 kilometers per hour. A quick glance. So we do have a few isolated showers popping up for early tomorrow morning. We have some drizzle, fog patches, so it is going to be a gray start, and then it'll start to brighten up, but that'll be towards the afternoon. Tracking some active weather for the central interior, severe thunderstorm watch in effect for the Caribou, Prince George, 100 Mile House, all included within that. So we are looking at lightning, intense downpours. We could see the potential for some hail popping up in this area, and this will start to ease off towards the afternoon, but the instability picks up once again. And that'll be late in the day for tomorrow in the southeastern corners of the province will be included within that. A quick glance at the future gas. So overnight, cloud cover, chance of showers, drizzle for most areas across the south coast, and then some breaks by the afternoon. We will see some sunshine in the mix, and it really does start to brighten up and dry out as we get into early next week. Overnight temperatures will be at 14 degrees tomorrow morning with some drizzle. Breaks towards the afternoon, temperatures getting up to 20 degrees. Long-range forecast advertising some sunshine, and temperatures really do start to warm up. Areas along the interior will be pushing closer to 30 degrees. Metro Vancouver, the temperature trend. This is what it looks like for a few spots away from the water. So it really does start to warm up as we get in towards next week. And the interior, for example, in Kelowna, getting closer to 30 degrees on Monday. Northern half of the province has been wet over the past few days. A break is on the way. More of a clearing towards the afternoon. Temperatures will be up to 15 degrees. Bit of instability for the northeastern corners. The Colombian Kootenai also included within that with the risk of thunderstorms tomorrow. Tops in Okanagan, a nice bright spot for the southern interior. The winds will pick up up to 40 or 30 kilometers per hour. So a heads up. Whistler will see a clearing, but it'll be late in the day. And then all areas across the south coast, starting off with cloud cover, bit of drizzle fog and then it clears out towards the afternoon. Long range forecast fantastic. We've got some sunshine and temperatures are going to start to warm up as well. Colleen? That's a little more summer like. Yes. Thank you Yvonne. Okay we want to show you now how vacationers in Northern Cal North California Carol North Carolina helped save a fawn. Have a look at this. The family spotted the fawn trapped in a flooded bunker and the animal was panicking trying to get out. So one of the children jumped in and helped save the deer. The girl says that she wants to be a veterinarian. 
when she grows up, and I think she's probably well on her way. And speaking of what you want to do when you grow up, a new photo of Prince William and his three children, George, Charlotte, and Louis, has been released ahead of William's birthday tomorrow. It was taken earlier this month by his wife, Catherine. William turns 38 tomorrow. It's hard to believe he's going to be 38. Kids are getting big, they and are. Catherine, she's always such a good photographer. Yeah, she takes a lot of the photos that are being released. It's yeah. wonder what kind of iPhone she's using. Yeah. <laughs> Probably the uh, top one, I would guess. Yeah, you yeah, think? think? <laughs> An iPhone 3. Is there such a thing? I don't even... uh, Well, I guess uh, we'll talk about it. <laughs> It's all you. A single of you. As soon as I wait for the awkward pause, I know it's my turn. Uh, there's a lot of talk about, uh, of course, the NHL hub cities are going to announce that next week. Hearing some good things that Vancouver could be it. I mean, it's good news, bad news. I mean, the good news is it's coming here. The bad news is fans can't watch the games anyway. So take that for what it is. But we'll uh, fill you in on that. We have some dates now about when the NHL could start up as well. And uh, we're going to have a story on the history of the Vancouver 86ers, a soccer team that's a big part of the history of uh, this province. We might have rain in Metro Vancouver, but thousands of Calgarians are still assessing the damage from last weekend's hailstorm. Early estimates suggest insurance claims could total a billion dollars. But as Global's Gil Tucker shows us, the pandemic means insurance companies are having to conduct business a little differently. First door, the second one, you're going to pull into the second one, okay? Hitting a drive-through is something we're doing more of during the pandemic, and now they're busy at this one. Dealing with the damage caused by last weekend's massive hailstorm. They're dense on the whole car. The damage is on the hood and on the roof, the mirror, and uh, even the sides at the rear. Yeah. We're conducting drive-through appraisals for our insurance partners on hail-damaged vehicles. Because of COVID now, uh, we have a contactless appraisal system where the customers remain in the vehicle um, and all of our appraisers walk around the vehicle and do all the assessment that way. It's also faster, we can accommodate more people because they drive in and drive out. I really like the idea. I've never seen this before. Because of the COVID, they're doing this, right? They're taking uh, precautions. Put the amount of dents in there. A very busy time for everyone dealing with the aftermath of the storm. This one has really, really hit hard. And they're averaging anywhere from 12, uh, as high as 28,000. Worth of damage. Yeah. A lot of the times the vehicles are coming in, they have uh, blown out back glass, broken windshields. A lot of them are missing sunroofs. Uh, Some have damage to mirrors, headlights, taillights. That is extreme. We will send you an estimate. How many days are you going to be doing this for? We'll be here for weeks. Our company will see well over a thousand customers from this storm. That's a lot of people and we're just one company. So there's, you know, tens of thousands affected by it. Gil Tucker, Global News. Barry's here with sports and, uh, I know you have some breaking news, so I'm going to just let take it away. Sort of breaking news. We not confirmed, but I think from good sources here. So it's, it's good to hear some numbers. Thanks, Colleen. Uh, some breaking news, as mentioned, out of the NHL's general manager meetings. According to the New York Post and Larry Brooks, the Stanley Cup tournament will begin July 30th. 
Training camps, as mentioned before, will begin July 10th, with teams then traveling to their respective hub city on July 23rd or 24th before playing just one exhibition game. So camps just three weeks away and games in just under six weeks. We should get the confirmation on the two hub cities next week. Now, reports say that Vancouver, Edmonton and Toronto have made the cut of the final six cities. And we have heard that Vancouver has a very good chance of landing it, but nothing official, at least for a few more days yet. Well, in this year of COVID, everything has flipped upside down, and that is the case for the American Triple Crown, which has literally flipped its order of races. Usually it goes Kentucky Derby, Preakness, Belmont, but this year... Belmont was first up. They even changed the distance of the race. Usually it's a lung-busting mile and a half, but that was changed this year to one and an eighth, making it the shortest of the Triple Crown races. That led to a large field today at Belmont Park in New York, where, of course, there were no fans in attendance. And they're into the stretch of the Belmont, and tis the law has taken charge. Set down in a final furlong by Manny Franco. Tis the law's got a two-length lead. Dr. Post has moved up on the outside into second. Pneumatic is third, but it is the New York hero. Tis the law and Manny Franco to win the Belmont Stakes. They took it by four lengths in the end. Dr. Post was second. Max Blair was third. Pneumatic was fourth. The final time, a brilliant 146.53 seconds. Toga celebrate. Third round of the RBC Heritage from Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. Canadian Corey Connors starting the day just a shot off the lead. Got off to a very good start. His approach at the first. Great iron player is uh, Corey. Gets it to six feet. Made the birdie to get to 12 under. Fifth hole from the bunker. Bit of an awkward stance, but Connors showing that skill. Knocks it to three feet. Would make that birdie on the par five. And he is tied for the lead, but he did make a couple of bogeys midway through his round, but gets back on track on 13. Great view of this 20-footer. Double breaker, read perfectly to sink the birdie, and he's back to 12 under. Connors had a costly bogey on the par 5 15th, but gets some important momentum into Sunday with this birdie finish at 18. So a 2 under 69 today, 13 under par, tied for 8th, but just 2 off the lead. Players who teed off early in the day took advantage of very quiet conditions, virtually no Wind. Englishman Terrell Hatton with a bomb birdie on 18, caps an 8 under 63. One of six guys to shoot 63 on the day. Abraham, Abraham Answer is yet to win on tour, but he's been close. 29-year-old from Mexico with a great approach here to 10 uh, inside three feet, made birdie, and Answer is tied at the top with Hatton at 15 under. Ryan Palmer looking to join that group at minus 15, will knock it close at the 15th. Palmer, part of a four-way tie that also includes second-round leader Webb Simpson, but plenty of players in the hunt at Harbortown. There is a four-way tie at the top. Corey Connors just two back, 15 players within two shots, 21 within three shots. Adam Hadwin tied for 36th at 9-under. And one other note, Nick Watney tested positive for COVID-19 and withdrew from the tournament yesterday. 11 people who were in close contact with him were tested and all came back negative. So that's good news. EPL today, Wolverhampton and West Ham. No scoring until the second half. Wolves get on the board. A great cross and power header from Raul Jimenez makes it 1-0 Wolves. And then in the 84th, 
Pedro Nato smashes the volley to the top of the net. Great goal. Wolves win 2-0. Now tied for fifth with Manchester United and definitely in the hunt for a Champions League spot. Also today, Brighton and Arsenal. Brighton in danger of relegation. Had yet to win in the calendar year 2020, but that changed thanks to this goal by Neil Mappé in stoppage time. 2-1. Brighton shocks Arsenal. Gunners now six points behind Man United for fifth in that cherished Champions League berth. Many young soccer fans know only the Whitecaps as Vancouver's pro soccer team over the years, but there was a time when another team held Vancouver's colors, and Squire Barnes reports the significance of the Vancouver 86ers should not be overlooked. Most people think the current Vancouver Whitecaps are direct descendants from the old Whitecaps of the North American Soccer League, and in a way they are. But there is another link in the chain for pro soccer in Vancouver and that is the 86ers. The franchise was born a couple of years after the NASL folded, and the idea came from former Whitecaps and Canadian national team coach Tony Waiters, and it was funded by local soccer fans who just wanted the Vancouver team to cheer for a game. And there were no money men in that group, so everyone put 500 bucks up to, to get the thing started and we had hoped to get to 100 but we we actually got to 86 which was appropriate as well so that was great because it was community and then the majority of the players were from British Columbia opening night for the 86ers was June 7th of 1987 at Swangard Stadium playing in the new Canadian Soccer League about 3,000 tickets sold in advance, and we're hoping to get a good walk up and put 4,000 people in the stadium. And darn it, if we didn't get 5,000 people at the walk up and a crowd of 7,600. In that first game, Bob Leonarduzzi was both player and coach, and Carl Valentine came back to Vancouver from England to score the 86ers' first ever goal. Bobby tells the story better, but he had said to me, look, you know, if you score a goal... To turn around and run to the main grandstand and just make them feel like you are so excited to be back and you're celebrating with them. And the players were all chasing me because it was like, what's he doing? And I chased all the way onto the track and then I was just like giving it one of them and uh, it, was, uh, it was a magical moment. Actually, Carl Valentine scored two goals on opening night, but there were more magical moments after that, a lot more. In their second season, the 86ers averaged an incredible three goals per game. For the second year, they brought in all kinds of well-known players, and they were probably too strong for the league beginning in 1988. They went on a 46-game undefeated streak. That's right. 46 games, 37 wins and 9 draws. The 86ers dominated the Canadian League. They won four championships in a row. And in the process, they kept pro soccer alive in Vancouver. The legacy of that group was that they actually kept the game going. And not just kept it going, but entertained. We scored a lot of goals and uh, Swan Garden was a great place to be on a nice uh, summer's night and seeing a, a good... Um, good style of soccer. I'm very proud of uh, uh, all the guys that we, that we played with and you know and everyone in the organization that made that commitment because it was a big commitment uh, nobody was making money out of that and uh, it really kept the game alive and I think that's why we're here today. Barry you're back time now for our nightly thanks to our BC healthcare heroes. Yvonne.
Tonight we are honoring Robert Common. Robert works at Royal Columbian Hospital in New Westminster. He is an anesthetic nursing assistant in respiratory care. He covers, uh, he orders protective equipment and respiratory supplies, and he also stocks ventilators that are needed during the pandemic. He sets the circuits on the ventilators and makes sure that they are working and has been working for patients and has been working extra hours during the pandemic. Thank you, Robert, and thank you to your team at Royal Columbia Hospital for all that you do. If you have a healthcare hero to nominate, email us a few pictures to bchealthcareheroes at globalnews.ca and tell us why they are your hero. Great photo, that last one. Uh, as you know, Yvonne and Barry, today marks the very first day of summer, the beginning of a season like we've never seen before with the pandemic halting international travel. BC is hoping local traffic will help save what's left of a disastrous year for tourism. Kristen Robinson reports. On the first day of summer, British Columbians taking their best shot at a season sidelined by COVID. Still some plans, yep. and but it's different maybe than other summers. Yeah. In Vancouver, the only thing familiar to those adjusting their vacation plans is the rain. Now we're just staying in BC. Walking around here and just staying home, staycation. That's what BC tourism officials want to hear, as the industry that generated 21.5 billion dollars in revenue last year and employed 166,000 braces for a huge loss. About half of it is generated from international tourists from the U.S. and from overseas. So quite an important hit, but a big hit. With no international travel, Destination BC is planning for just $7 billion in revenue and fewer than 50,000 employees in 2020. They're relying on locals to help offset the losses. Many businesses are in dire straits. Three pounds, once the province rolls out its phase three restart, lifting travel restrictions between communities, an Explore BC campaign will launch, promoting 2020 as the year of the staycation. Let's stay close to home. For a lot of the businesses in Steveston, uh, international tourism is something that really can make or break them throughout the summer. So they're going to be heavily depending on our locals to uh, help them make it through. By supporting merchants and filling patios during the peak summer months. I think, yeah, I'm still traveling around, Every around BC. Every weekend he's got something <laughs> booked. We might go to Penticton, got some friends up there. So far, it seems many willing to make the most of their own backyard. In there, in there! <clears throat> to keep BC in the game. Kristen Robinson, Global News. It's volleyball in the rain, only in Vancouver. It's the only way to play. Yes. Absolutely. That's why I don't play volleyball. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yvonne, uh, when is the sun going to show up? Okay, so for tomorrow, first full day of summer, we are going to see uh, some cloud cover drizzle in the morning, and then it really does start to brighten up. It'll be into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, some warm days away from the water, even into the mid-20s. So it is going to heat up as we get in towards next week. Tomorrow, just one more day of some cloud cover. Okay, thanks, Yvonne. That's Global News Hour at 6 for now. Jordan will be here at 11. Thanks for joining us. Have a great night.